Welcome to Global Dispatches, a podcast about foreign policy and world affairs. I'm your host, Mark Leon Goldberg, editor of UN Dispatch. And in this show, we discuss topical global issues. And I have conversations with foreign policy thought leaders who discuss their life, career, and the big events that shape their worldview. When I reached Ahmad Shuja in Kabul, the country was still reeling from the single deadliest Taliban attack since the start of the insurgency nearly 15 years ago. Some 160 young soldiers, mostly recruits, were massacred in a brazen assault on a base in the northern part of the country. And that attack came after the United States dropped the largest non-nuclear bomb ever used in combat on what was reportedly a network of tunnels used by insurgents. I've known Ahmad for a while. I used to edit him on UN Dispatch, in fact. For the last several years, he's lived in his native Afghanistan, working as an analyst and researcher for Human Rights Watch, and now he's affiliated with the American University of Afghanistan, though he stresses that he is speaking in his personal capacity. He discusses the implications of the recent Taliban attack, what the U.S. government could be doing differently in Afghanistan, and how and why the government of Afghanistan is struggling to meet some of the basic needs of its people. Ahmad also discusses, from a personal perspective, the deteriorating security environment in Kabul and the effect that it's having on daily life there. This is a helpful conversation if you want to get up to speed on what is happening in Afghanistan, particularly as the Trump administration undertakes what is apparently a policy review. Then have a listen. So I mentioned this in the intro to the previous episode, but one thing I keep hearing from listeners, and by the way, I love when you email me, you can hit the uh, contact button on globaldispatchespodcast.com to send me an email. Uh, but I keep hearing from you that you are attracted to the podcast, you love the podcast, you come back to it because it kind of makes you feel connected to the foreign policy community, the debates that are happening in Washington, D.C., in New York, and around the world on foreign policy issues. So one way, one easy way I thought to help enhance that connection for you uh, is to put together a list of Twitter users I find particularly helpful and I follow throughout the day to keep me informed of what's happening uh, around the world, what the key debates are as they are unfolding. If you'd like that list, just send me an email. No need to be a premium subscriber for that. Although if you are a premium subscriber, you get a whole host of awesome rewards, which you can uh, discover, check out by clicking on the support the show link on globaldispatchespodcast.com. Or if you're listening to this on iTunes, you can check out the description field of this episode. And some of the bonus episodes that are exclusive to premium subscribers are listed there. All right. Now here is Ahmad Shuja, and I caught up with him from Kabul. Looking for a trustworthy podcast to bring you unfiltered viewpoints and experiences on global health? Tune into Global Health Matters, the podcast that connects silos and amplifies diverse voices to give you a holistic picture. Each month, Dr. Gary Aslanian from the World Health Organization hosts discussions with guests spanning former ministers of health, award-winning journalists and authors, and frontline public health workers. Join listeners from across 180 countries for an exciting Season 4, launching in June. Global Health Matters is available on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and YouTube. Um, Kabul is very, very angry and um, very uh, disappointed, actually, because there's been a string of attacks, most recently a few days ago, 
at the 209th Army Corps, uh, based out of Mazar Sharif in the north, that killed um, 150 or 160 soldiers and wounded hundreds more. Uh, an attack by the Taliban, which is really the latest in a string of attacks that they've coordinated and 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 uh, implemented against Afghan military installations uh, across the country, including here in Kabul. And so the anger really is um, not just at the fatalities, but also at the fact that this seems to be a recurring pattern and the fact that there is a very strong suspicion um, or cynicism uh, in among the people in Kabul, but broadly in Afghanistan in general, that there may be some inside help in a lot of these high-profile attacks that are that are happening, and that the government is somehow either um, unwilling or uh, incapable of uh, stemming uh, these attacks. Um, so there's a lot of anger, number one, and number two, there's also a lot of apprehension and a sense of foreboding because we're not even at the beginning of this this is supposed to be the the winter lull when the Taliban go to their homes, take a rest, sip their cups of tea, sit back and relax. But they've been keeping a very steady tempo of attacks across the country. Um, and the sense of foreboding comes from the fact that they're just about to um, announce their spring offensive, which typically happens between the first week of April to the first week of May. So any day now, we're going to hear the Taliban announce their new attacks. And, hope, and, and, and a lot of people are afraid that there's going to be more high profile attacks, especially so, in the first few weeks. So that attack on the military installation, which is, I think, the single deadliest attack in the entire, you know, 16 year history of of the the Taliban insurgency, uh, happened before even they announced an official offensive. Absolutely, and we've seen this trend um, for several years now, when the winter lull period really isn't there, and the Taliban continue their operational tempo. But this year, it's been particularly deadly because we've had three, four attacks against military installations, each of which producing massive numbers of casualties among recruits and other uh, um, soldiers. And, and I mean, you said earlier that um, really these attacks have undermined uh, the population's confidence in their government, which I have to imagine was not particularly uh, strong to begin with. I mean, like what, what's the kind of political dynamic that that causes when you have this um, kind of regular undermining of confidence in the government because these attacks seem to be unrelenting? Right. So, so the attacks are coming at a time when the government itself um, is is facing, uh, or the whole constitutional order is facing uh, a bit of a crisis of legitimacy because you have the parliament operating two two years actually beyond almost two years beyond its its constitutional mandate. It was supposed to. Uh, have had a new term with new legislature legislators uh, in July 2015. So we're beyond that term. Uh, the president uh, and the national unity government that includes a, as a chief executive officer uh, was supposed to have uh, turned into a post of prime minister through a lawyer jirga, which is a, a grand council uh, that was supposed to have amended the constitution uh, within two years of, of, of this president taking office. That two years came and ended uh, last September. And so even the current government, the executive, is in a bit of a, 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 a dubious sort of uh, setup. Um, and, so, and so the attacks are happening at a time when the government is in this situation. 
And there's a lot of infighting, political infighting between the president and his vice president, the president and his electoral ally and his special representative on good governance, the president and the chief executive officer. So it is a situation of political uncertainty, a lot of political tension and a situation of deteriorating security. Um, and so that's why a lot of people have their eyes set on Washington and on the trip recently by Mattis, but also by uh, by McMaster and other officials uh, who are set to be considering uh, troop increases or otherwise uh, for Afghanistan. So, so, so let's talk about U.S. policy for a minute. So we are speaking on Wednesday and on Monday, the Defense Secretary General Mattis uh, made a surprise trip to Afghanistan to assess the situation and presumably gather information that he will use to inform the policy debate in Washington, D.C., and potentially make recommendations on, on troop levels. So currently, there's something like 8,400 U.S. troops, some 6,500 other NATO troops. Um, what, from your perspective, uh, having been in, have, you know, having been in, in Kabul now for in, in this latest stretch for, for the last five years working in Kabul would be like an optimal U.S. military strategy? It's, it's, it's difficult to say because, uh, what I can tell you is the sense on the ground in Afghanistan is that the government and a lot of the people who support this government, uh, which is, uh, and, and there's a, there's a subtle difference there. there. There are people who are disappointed with the administration, but these people are still staunchly pro-government and pro-constitutional order. So the people here actually want more U.S. troops, as many of them as they can get. But the people here, including the government, also want more U.S. military commitment, including intelligence capabilities, uh, military hardware, particularly um, air defense capabilities uh, and air attack capabilities. Uh, but also, I think one thing that the U.S. has really, really been um, is seen not to have delivered on is pressure on uh, Pakistan, because the sense is, and and there this seems to be a broader consensus that the Pakistan the Pakistani establishment um, is supporting, helping. Um, giving resources to the Taliban and the Haqqani network who then come and stage attacks like the ones we've seen here that has stoked uh, and, and given rise to so much anger and fury. And so and, and people are speculating that that the urban farm boy foot soldiers of the Taliban are just not sophisticated enough. They're not literate enough to carry out some of these high profile attacks. So they must have some sort of backing and support and planning and mastermind support from across the border. And so people think that one of the uh, sort of uh, salient features of an optimal U.S. strategy in Afghanistan would be to uh, to pressure the Pakistanis to give up their support in the Taliban. But like that's the same old story, Ahmed. I mean, that's been the case since the start of the conflict, right? Um, yes, with one exception that the that the Americans really have been very deferential towards uh, towards the Pakistanis, or at least that's how they've they've been seen here. And sometime around 2011, 2012, 2013, when the Pakistanis said, "Well, we've changed now. There are no good and bad Taliban. We're going after the Taliban." Um, the American officials in, in Afghanistan were reassuring everybody that, yes, look, Afghanistan, uh, the Pakistanis have a uh, really have had a change of heart. But turns out that the Americans were misled or um, that they themselves now think that they were wrong about the Pakistani change of heart. And so the, the, there is a real need 
for that change of heart to happen either voluntarily, which seems very unlikely, or uh, with some sort of concerted military uh, diplomatic push um, on the Pakistani state. And I guess there is the opportunity now with the new president to to reset policy in in a way, although I have not seen any indications whatsoever that the Trump administration is willing to, like, quote, get tough on on Pakistan. You would be surprised because the way the the government reads things here is slightly different because huh. Trump obviously uh, is is seen as is a tough as a, as a tough president. But also, when McMaster visited Afghanistan, he said something to the effect of the Pakistanis should use diplomatic tools to further their interests, not proxies. And that was seen in Afghanistan as a sign that the Trump administration is actually fed up with uh, this, this double-edged, double game that the Pakistanis seem to be playing, whereas on the one hand, they're reassuring the Americans. On the other hand, they're supporting covertly the Haqqani network and the Taliban. So obviously, you know, you've, you've, you've been sort of a part of, of Afghanistan for, for your whole life. But in this most recent sort of five-year stretch that you've lived there, have you had a sense that things are getting any better, any worse, or just sort of plateaued from just like a, a daily life perspective, like like you going about your daily life as like an urbane, cosmopolitan uh, person living in, in Kabul? Is, is your life marginally better, marginally worse, or about the same as it was five years ago? I wish I could tell you that life's the same. Unfortunately, life is not the same. I think um, a lot of um, Afghans, regardless of, of you know what jobs they have, what the level of education they they're, they're, they they've attained, really are living a much more constrained life, uh, security-wise. Uh, used to, we had these so-called spectacular attacks, uh, but now um, then we had these random rockets falling all over the city um, at night. Um, and then now what we have is uh, so so with with the spectacular attacks you knew who the targets were and you could stay away from them right and you knew that the rush hour really attracted attacks and you could sort of stay off the roads during rush hour but then the rockets came and there was no way for you to avoid the rockets and now you have magnetic IEDs improvised explosive devices attached to vehicles that belong to individuals um, government entities uh, police patrol vehicles and others and so you could be on the road and there could be a vehicle on, uh, that that might just go off at at any point. And so security wise, the space where you thought you would sit, you would, could safely operate with a reasonable expectation of safety has really dwindled. Um, economy wise, a lot of the people who were educated and who had jobs, who had worked with NGOs really have lost a lot of uh, their jobs. Uh, there's a lot of unemployment. There's a lot of underemployment. There's, uh, um, there, there's all kinds of um, issues going on. Um, so life has really gotten worse. And the Kabul um, is also home to a very, very large and rapidly increasing um, internally displaced population, be displaced because of the conflict, displaced because of natural disasters, displaced because um, of um, returnees being um, sent back to Afghanistan, A, from Europe coercively, but also in Pakistan um, because, of course, of factors that are forcing to come back then to come back to Afghanistan. And so there's, there's, it's a, a Kabul is a metropolis on the edge, security wise, deteriorating e e economics wise, and um, also is sort of a ticking population bomb, uh, because all these stripes of different people have come to the city, and there's a lot of pressure on city services. 
has the the sort of change in the security situation that you've experienced um, sort of come as a result of an increasing presence of, of ISIS that seems to be more relevant in Afghanistan now? So elements claiming to be ISIS or affi- claiming affiliation with ISIS um, have carried out a number of very deadly attacks uh, on mosques, on uh, gatherings that have been very secular and having nothing to do with uh, with religion or anything that, that ISIS really holds dear. Um, so yes, um, they have created massive numbers of casualties, uh, particularly against uh, the Shia um, faith group, uh, which happened to be almost exclusively in Afghanistan, the Hazara ethnic group. So the Hazaras are predominantly Shias, and so they've been the predominant targets, regardless of whether they're holding a religious ceremony um, or whether they're holding a civil political protest. Um, so yes, ISIS has held uh, or organized a number of very deadly attacks uh, that have killed hundreds of people and maimed hundreds of people in Kabul, and, and they're really a, a major uh, producer of civilian casualties the last few years. Um, so I, I know I'm, I'm speaking to you at an institution that was subject to to an attack, and, and you joined this institution after uh, the fact that that you, the, the the attack happened over the summer, and and you are now uh, with this institution um, in, since uh, I believe January. Um, how do does an institution like that, a civilian institution that has been the subject of an attack, sort of recover and and go about on its 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 sort of daily life and and return to what is is normal? I mean, how like what's that process like? It's um, never normal after an attack like this. Uh, we can attain a semblance of normalcy. Um, where the routine things that people do at universities can be conducted. And the number one thing that that AUAF, which is the American University of Afghanistan, has really focused on um, is security. So there has been a major emphasis on upgrading security, on improving security, on um, introducing um, security procedures and protocols and things that would uh, make not only the environment secure, but also give a sense to people who come in here that that it is it is more secure obviously there's nothing you can do that would guarantee 100 percent safety um, but we're blessed with the fact that um, the faculty and the students um, have come back and 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 we've had one of the largest incoming classes um, this spring um, in AUAS tenure history and people come back for a number of reasons I've asked this myself uh, over the last few months and I've spoken to a lot of people they come back because they wanted to finish their degrees. They come back because AUAF is offering them a full scholarship and, and a world-class education here in their own hometown where they can live with their own families. They come back because um, because they see this as an institution that is that offers them a way to resist. I've spoken to many students and, uh, who have told me that um, quitting would have, have been um, uh, sort of disloyal to the legacy and and to the wishes of their friends that they've lost, the professors that they've lost. And so there's a number of different motivations of people coming back to campus, but those are some of them. Obviously, some students are are traumatized. Uh, They uh, have not come back, uh, but but there is a large constituency. Uh, Most of the students and staff and faculty have come back. 
I mean, do you see sort of the 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 future? I mean, as being one in which uh, the people of of Kabul, your your friends, your colleagues, and and even you, are just going to have to come to terms with the fact that um, there is just no predictability to the security situation. That you know things could could deteriorate very rapidly at any given time. That there's no that 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 like there's no like safe space as 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 you said earlier. I mean, and how does that like uh, affect you? How does that affect your not only even your your daily life, just like the functioning of of the city? Um, like I said, um, Kabul is a city on the edge. Um, you can talk with any taxi driver in the city, and they'll tell you that look, I've come out of the home out of my house this morning, and uh, there's no expectation that I'd go back in one piece or that I that I'd go back at all. Um, so there is there is a lot of that sense of anything could happen at any moment, the sense of suspended animation, the sense of uh, <laughs> a, a risk, a latent level of risk to being in this city. Um, and yet you have a lot of people coming in from their provinces because they see the city much uh, you know, as safer than the places they're leaving behind, uh, which is much more on the front lines of the fight against the Taliban and, and in some cases ISIS. So you can imagine what the situation is like outside of the cities, um, which is forcing people to come back here. So people have uh, taken that into consideration that, that it is um, an inherently risky endeavor to live here. Um, and earlier you mentioned that one of the um, kind of key policy points that the Trump administration could return to is, is, is pressuring Pakistan to rein in their support for the Taliban. Uh, from a, a, a Afghan policy position, like what what could like the the government of Ashraf Ghani do do more of do better to uh, kind of help return the sense of normalcy to to life in in Kabul and, and throughout Afghanistan. The the number one thing um, is to focus on security, and there's only so much you can do in terms of beating back the insurgency. But 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 there's a lot of structural problems within the Afghan national security forces um, that are really administrative in nature, and they could be done um, if there is a president willing to take um, charge of it. Uh, there is uh, obviously issues of desertion, but there's also issues of the so-called ghost soldiers who don't exist, but they are in the roster and their salaries do come and all of that. There's also a, an issue of troop morale. There's an issue of, of bad leadership where this Soviet era, Soviet trained generals are now at the helm of a military that's really American trained um, and is fighting an insurgency, not a conventional war. Um, there are issues of um, equipping and offering uh, adequate food and supplies to these soldiers uh, because a lot of these soldiers go hungry and thirsty at the forward operating bases at the checkpoints. Um, whereas, uh, so, so what, what this administration can do to, to, to sort of improve daily life is, is, is number one, focus on security. And number two, at every point where the citizen interacts with the state, uh, make sure that that interaction is actually more pleasant than it is currently, which means um, tackling graft, tackling uh, corruption, tackling bureaucracy, 
the bureaucracy is really one thing that is giving rise to a lot of the corruption. Things take a long time. Things do not happen efficiently. And so if you want something to happen efficiently and on time, you're forced to uh, use extraordinary measures. So those are the two things that really could make a qualitative uh, difference uh, that are that are practicable in the medium term. Can you give a- obviously mm-hmm. creating more jobs and improving the economy and all of that. Can you give an example of, of how you've interacted with bureaucracy in like a frustrating way? Like, like what, what's just like a, a quotidian sort of thing that, that um, just brings home to you how frustrating dealing with this bureaucracy can be. Uh, my grandmother is uh, as we speak, actually in the process of collecting the annual pension payments of my late grandfather. And, and that has been a process that has been, comically drawn out, very frustrating. Um, it just doesn't happen. Paperwork just doesn't move along. Um, and it's at, to the point where the guard at the gate is refusing these petitioners entry into the office building so they can take their paperwork forward. So it begins with the guard and you can give him money, bribe him so he can put you one step ahead. You go to the next guy who's a P and the personal assistant to the to the administrator. He will push your paperwork forward just a little bit. So it, it, it's that. Uh, when I went to get my passport, obviously the passport department seen as one of the more efficient ones, but it's, it's grotesquely overcrowded. People come there at 12 a.m. the night before so they can actually actually get a shot at going into the department the morning after um, because the lines are just that long. So it's, it's, it's just like a, a steady stream of these kinds of, of bureaucratic obscenities that uh, just kind of force people over the edge in, in, in a way and, and just frustrate people. And it's another, I think, thing that you started with, which is that, you know, just kind of lose confident, confidence in their, their own government, which undermines the stability of, of the entire entire country i would imagine i i would so there there are greater things that undermine stability in the mm-hmm. country number one is is absolute impunity for people who are known to be in the government but also um extorting money from people uh in, indulging in torture extrajudicial killings and running private prisons uh which are very well documented by my former employer human rights watch um, and so that is really the major big driver of uh, the populace away from the government, but also the daily indignities and frustrations of dealing with the government um, is creating a lot of disillusionment and frustration. Um, you're absolutely right about that. Uh, well, Ahmed, thank you so much for your time. This was, this was very helpful. Um, thanks for having me. All right. Thank you all for listening. Thank you to Ahmad. Stay safe out there. I hope to uh, to be editing him once again sometime in the in the near future. Thank you all for listening. And yeah, just just uh, be be a premium subscriber. Help this show get connected to other premium subscribers. There are some great great rewards that we are rolling out in the next few weeks. So get on board now. So appreciated. Thank you guys. Later.